Well, good morning, Genesis House. Why don't we read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I think it's safe to say that in all of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, no other verses have grabbed the attentions of Christians more than these. Um, I know of no other verses that have been more debated, uh, produced more contention, and probably the most misunderstood than verses 11 through 15. And perhaps that's true of not only the pastoral epistles, but all of the New Testament. And what I find interesting is that even though I know of no one that would say the roles of men and women in ministry are a salvation issue, we often don't treat it as such. So again, if I were to say, what's essential and non-essential in Christian doctrine, you'd say, well, women in ministry roles aren't necessarily uh, essential. But man, do we ever fight for our positions when it comes to this, and we treat it as if one person is saved and one isn't if we don't agree with one another. We can often write off people spiritually if they don't see eye to eye with us. Now, I know many people have left churches over this issue. Um, even denominations don't would have a hard time coexisting. Like I think of, uh, you know, the, the maybe the Reform sort of Baptist background that would typically hold to strong beliefs that there's no role for women in any sort of leadership, or if there is, it's very limited. Um, whereas you have on the other side, maybe Pentecostals or the Free Methodist Church would, would, would be more open, in fact, would have all open doors uh, to these areas. And so these are the two extreme positions. On one side, you have the position that, um, that within leadership in the church, uh, the position of eldership, pastor, the right to teach, even be a missionary, uh, resides with men only and not to women. The exception for women in this case would be they can teach uh, younger women if they're older and they have the right to teach children. Uh, on the other side, um, there's, it's a free-for-all. So there's a belief that there's no distinctions made between men and women and both are free to pursue any ministry roles provided they have the gifts and graces to do so. Um, yeah, so these are kind of like the two positions. And then, of course, there's a smattering in between that sort of have these different exceptions and whatnot. But on the extreme ends, you know, the North Pole and South Pole of, of the uh, beliefs, these are the two positions. And I'm not telling you anything new. Uh, you already hold to probably one of these sides already. Now, what I find fascinating and remarkable about this, even though both sides are often diametrically opposed, we use the same passage to come to the different conclusion. <laughs> we use the same passages and come to a different, same, different conclusion. And so, again, the, the key um, is that it's, it's a baffling that this can actually occur, but it makes sense that this will occur based on things like our past experiences, our culture, our family upbringing, if we've been hurt in the church by certain people, if we've been influenced by the um, misogynists or feminists, like, like there's so many variables uh, who our spiritual mentors are, they can have such a high degree in terms of how we think. Now, what's really important to me is that even though uh, 
the Free Methodist Church in Canada is open to, to women in ministry in all positions. Their founder, the founder of the Free Methodist Church was John Wesley in the 1700s. He himself was conflicted over this issue. Now, I don't think that many people in the Free Methodist Church are even aware of his original stance in ministry and where he and where he came from. Um, it was really interesting. Dan and I were, were studying this. We've been studying this for months, by the way, in preparation uh, for this day. But uh, Dan found this online uh, on an article, and I never learned this in any of my courses I took in the Free Methodist Church, which makes me realize it's probably a, a mystery to many of us here within the denomination. Um, John Wesley was converted in 1738, and in the first 33 years of his ministry, he didn't allow women to teach or have authority in the church. So our very founder, in which we belong to, which has the door open to all women in ministry, our very founder for 33 years didn't allow women to preach or teach and hold eldership positions. It wasn't until 1771, at the age of 68, he changed his mind. Now, he died in 1791 at 88. That means for the first 33 years of ministry, he was close to the idea, but in the last 20, he opened the, himself to the idea that women could function in these ways. Now, I'm going to get to his story at the end of our sermon and tell you what happened to him and how he came to that conclusion. So again, here's what's important, though. Nobody that I know of on either side knowing John Wesley's history, has ever written him, written him off as being a follower of Jesus who was sold out for him and loved the Lord, either pre or post his vision, his, uh, his understanding of women in ministry roles. Now I say that, that's really important for us, church. Really important. Uh, this guy was a sold out follower of Jesus when he didn't believe they had a place in the teaching and preaching in the church. He was a sold out follower of Jesus after he believed that. We have to remember this as we approach one another, because I know in Genesis House, I've talked to many of you for many years, and even just like, you know, recently about your positions, and I know there's a variation in our church about where we stand. But we can't write one enough, one enough, one another off, even uh, if we hold different positions. But I'm going to, um, going to speak to you today about the conclusions that I've come to in my studies as of late. And I've been really uh, opened up uh, in my understanding about maybe what Paul's getting to here. So I'm going to present you with a third option. I don't think on either side, option one and option two that I mentioned, either like fully closed or fully open, I don't believe that is the right approach. I'm going to present a third option. And again, I'm I know that at the end of this, you still may disagree, but I'm going to present a third option as to what I think Paul is referring to. And here's the option. Oh, it won't, uh, it won't skip forward for some reason. Hmm. Oh, there it goes. Here's my uh, third option. A woman's restriction from the office of elder and pastor is not, or pastor or teacher is not based on gender but on her role. So a woman's restriction for the office of elder, pastor, and teaching within a church is not based on gender, it's based on role. And I'm going to get into this uh, throughout the sermon here. So let's dive in. Now last week's sermon was vital. 
If you missed it, you need to listen to it for this to make sense. We, we spoke last week that both biologically and theologically, women were designed not only to have, but to raise children. That was God's primary role, to raise family, to have family. We saw this in Genesis 3, in where God cursed man and woman. He was cursed in work. She was cursed in the family. Hannah uh, um, uh, was one who chose to raise Samuel before giving him to Eli. Even though she made a vow, she would, never, she would give him to the Lord all the days of her life. Uh, Proverbs 31, she was a working woman who still chose to make her household the, the primary place. And Paul three times in 1 Timothy gave, gave um, correctives to the women there who were forsaking marriage and forsaking family. He made it obvious in the book, in the letter, that family was important and her primary role was to have family. Now, what's important is that I, I remind you of this because the only exception we talked about was that it, for motherhood was if a woman chose to be single for the sake of the kingdom, 1 Corinthians 7, or she had no opportunity to get married. So she wanted to, she wanted to have family, but an opportunity never presented itself. But again, the spiritual gift in 1 Corinthians 7 was key. Now I remind you this because of what Paul says in verse 12. He says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So the question is, well actually all commentators agree, and I couldn't find anyone who didn't agree with this, that Paul was restricting women to some degree, regardless of what their position was. So everyone believes that there is a restriction here, but the disagreement was to what degree and why was he making the restriction. So there's two key points I want you to not miss for the purpose of our sermon today. And the first one is this. Well, it's like two, two of them are this. Paul's assumption is this. He always assumes marriage in the scriptures, unless otherwise stated. He assumes, he assumes marriage. And the second one is that he assumes that all godly people will have children. These are the two assumptions. Let's talk about Paul's assumption on marriage. First one is this. It's important to note that other, uh, other, uh, unless otherwise stated, Paul defaults to a marriage audience. Look at chapter 3, verse 2. He says, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Look at 3, verse 12. Deacons must be the husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. Look at chapter 2, verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children. And here's the thing. We know Paul never advocates in any of his doctrine or his scriptures premarital sex. So the assumption in 2.15 is when he tells people, women to have children, it's because they're married. So this is really important. This is really important that we understand that Paul defaults to marriage and assumes that marriage is the context unless otherwise stated. Now, at the same time, even though he assumes marriage, he's not teaching here in regards to the office of eldership or deacon that if one was single, they would be disqualified. He's not saying that a single person would be disqualified even though he defaults to marriage. And here's why. Paul himself is single. He established the church plants. 
He's the one who established the church in Ephesus. Timothy, from everything we can gather in Scripture, is single. There's no evidence to point that he's married. And yet, who's the one set in charge to appoint eldership? <laughs> Timothy. So again, this is really important. By stating the fact that he thinks an elder and deacon in here um, is, uh, he assumes marriage doesn't disqualify one from ministry because they're single. He assumes, though, that everybody's married. And I look at Genesis House, even just for that, for that matter. Um, again, like the majority of people in our church are married. It's the assumption. It's the assumption. So this is really important. Really important in terms of the context. Second one, he believes that all godly women will have children. In chapter, five, uh, sorry, in chapter 5, verse 10, regarding the widow's list, he says that when, when women would come forward as widows to be put on the list for the church to take care of them, one of the qualifications was they had brought up children. A godly woman in 1 Timothy 5, a godly widow, to be taken care of, assumed that she was hospitable. She, you know, she had all these characteristics, like she'd wash the saints' feet and whatnot. But one of them was that she had raised children. That so, godly women are assumed to have raised children. And in uh, chapter three, verse four, this is really important regarding the men. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. Again, this is important that that the the godly man here is assumed to have raised a family and had children and kept them under control. Again, this is, we're, not, we're not discussing exceptions. Like, remember, certain people can't have children if they're barren. If you're barren, you can't have children. Let's say you have, like, you have major health issues uh, restricting children. That's another possibility. Or if you had no opportunity... So that's not that you can't be godly if you're a single person or never, sorry, if you've never had children. It's just that, um, it's just that the assumption is that all godly people have children. So we're in no way are we taking away from the value of singleness in this. Now, 1 Corinthians 7, 8 is really important here because there is a value in singleness. Uh, Paul says, Now to the unmarried and the widow, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried, as I do, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. So again, before this, he talks about himself having the spiritual gift, and he's saying it's good for women, if they or men, but women, especially in our context, if they want to stay single, if they have the gift. And that's a good thing. And in 732 to 34 in Corinthians, he says, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. So again, this is important because... It's true. I mean, me in my life as a married man, I have to default all the time to Janice and any decision I make in the ministry in terms of like uh, my schedule. I always want to make sure if I if I confirm a time to meet with you or to um, do some special ministry work that I have to talk to her to make sure I don't uh, mess up the family schedule and we're working in, in harmony with one another. As a single man, I would default to no one. There'd be no interest divided. 
and my schedule will be completely my own. And I'm not thought a complaint. It's a blessing to be married, but I'm just saying you can see the issue with men and women in singleness versus being married. So this is really important again. Paul defaults to marriage in this context. The problem in Ephesus, as we discussed last week, was the family roles were being devalued. Women were abandoning their primary role. They were abandoning their primary role. They didn't want to get married. They didn't want to have children. But another problem with the women there was they were a noisy bunch and they were a handful. In chapter 5, uh, verse 13, Paul says, These women are idle, going from house to house, being gossips and busybodies. And basically they were talking trash. They were, they were up to no good with their, with their conversations and language. So these women were anything but quiet. Anything but quiet. And based on what Paul says in verse 11, they were clearly being disruptive during the times when they were gathered to worship. And they didn't want to submit to the men who were already in place of leadership in terms of having authority in the church. This is why he says in verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So again, the problem in Ephesus is these women don't want to take the posture of a, le a learner. Now I'm guessing if you and I were there, we would witness these women trying to get a word in edgewise wherever they could and whenever they could, and they were not submitting to the man in a spirit of tranquility and peacefulness during the services, allowing them to teach freely. And so they were being really disruptive. And so Paul wanted to make a correction here. They were, they were noisy, they weren't submitting to the leadership, they weren't uh, being respectful of the time of teaching that the men were doing in the church. But not only did they not want to learn, they also wanted to be teachers. They wanted to be teachers. And so Paul puts a restriction on them in verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Here's what I believe Paul is saying here, based on the context of everything we've learned so far. Here's what he's saying. Paul was not restricting these women from ever teaching or having authority over men under all circumstances. He was simply restricting her or a woman from taking the office, the office of an elder whose primary role included teaching and exercising authority. I'll say it again. He was simply restricting her from taking the office of an elder whose primary role included teaching and exercising authority. I'm going to give you substantiations to prove this from the text and everything we've learned so far. This, he wasn't restricting from a, uh, a man, a woman teaching men at all times or doing a one-off teaching here and there or leading in any way. I believe it had to do with the office of being an elder and an overseer. Here's the substantiations. After correcting the women in Ephesus, in chapter 3, Paul immediately moves to endorse men for the office of overseer. Look at 3, 1 and 2. It's a trustworthy, trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. This is an important distinction. 
just let me just make a side note here. The word overseer and elder, just by the way, is interchangeable. So if I talk, if it talks about being an overseer and elder, uh, these are the same, or a teacher, these are the same roles. So don't get confused with the words. But here's the point. This here is defining a job. It's defining a role within the church. It's an, an office. And there's two key aspects to this office. Number one in verse two, they have to be able to teach the word of God. But number two, they have to be able to manage the household of God. Look at verse four. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not how to know how to manage his own household, how, he will, how will he take care of the household of God? Now, this is really important. He's making a comparison between how he manages family and manages the church. Managing your family is not a once a month or once every two month uh, uh, hit, and, uh, hit and miss thing. Like you don't sort of come in and out inter intermittently. To manage your household is a full-time position. It's a full-time job. He's saying based on that, to manage the church is the same thing. So Paul sees this office as being a full-time position. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge amount of time, and that's a commitment. This is super important. He further defines the office in chapter 5, verse 17. Turn with me there in 5.17. In 5.17, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You notice the distinction there? It's not just those who teach. It's those who rule. Rule. What's Paul mentioned in verse... Um, what does Paul talk about in chapter 2? He talks about those who exercise authority. Ruling and authority are basically synonyms. They're interchangeable. So again, the issue here is that the office of overseer is one that you have to manage and one that requires authority to rule is, on, is in and above teaching. Again, it's not one-offs. This is a full-time job. It's a big job. It takes a huge time commitment. This is really important. Now, what's interesting, I just thought, I'll look up the Greek word for office. Do you know where it occurs? really, really important to me in my studies. In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, remember Judas lost his position of apostleship and he committed suicide? Peter stands up and says this, I would like to, we need to appoint someone to take his position. And then they appoint Matthias and he quotes the Psalms and he says this, let, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Judas was not a one-hit wonder in terms of time and commitment in ministry. The three years he walked beside Jesus, he was busy in a full-time primary role as a, an apostle. And this is what Paul is talking about here in these scriptures. This is an office you rule. You get paid to do this job. This is your primary role. So what Paul's restricting here is not a momentary teaching, but a woman to ditching her primary role of motherhood and to want to, um, to get into those positions of leadership in order to take on the full-time position of pastor, teacher, and elder. 
This is, I think, for me, a, a huge distinction in my learning and a position I've never saw or held before. I'll be honest with you, um, for years and years I've been on sort of the option one side that the, the restrictions of women uh, in ministry were limited um, and to children and to, um, to other women because to me verse 12 is so clear. But after doing further study in the last, like, you know, six months or so, these scriptures have really opened my eyes to what Paul's probably trying to say here. Now, again, I realize that you may disagree with me in the end, but I wanted to give you the scriptural evidence to support where I'm coming from. Now, are there exceptions to this rule? Are there exceptions to this? I would say yes, and we're going to get into this in a few minutes. But again, this is where it's important to remember last week's sermon on the role of a woman, primary role, um, that she's to pursue motherhood and to have children and raise family. Again, because the context assumes marriage. So Paul can say straight out of this that the office for a ruling elder is not for women. What she needs to be doing is getting back to the role intended for her, which is motherhood. And that's what Paul's driving at. Now, Paul makes um, the re he gives two substantiations for why women are not to take the office of overseer by making two points from what happened in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. In verse 13 and 14, he says this, For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman had been deceived, fell into transgression. The first thing he makes this point on is the created order. For it was Adam who was created first, and then Eve. Now, how Paul is using verse 13 to substantiate verse 12 is not explicitly stated. He doesn't give a, a, a he doesn't sort of broaden the term here and explain how he, why he says this. Gordon Fee in his commentary was very helpful. He actually says it really well. He says Paul neither explains or elaborates. He simply states the facts of the order of creation, <laughs> and that's bang on. That's true. So what's tough, church, is that we as a body of Christ are left to extrapolate what we think Paul meant by this statement. And this is where all the division between us occurs. And, you know, the people who support no women in any ministry form of roles and teaching and pastors and all these types of things will, will interpret these verses one way and the people that support it interpret another and because it's not explicitly stated or spelled out, that's where we get into all sorts of debate and discussion and how come we often end up divided. Now, again, I know in your own heads you've made up your mind about what this probably is saying and why he says this. And I, I understand your positions no matter which way, you, which way you interpret these verses. So let me just make a couple of comments that I see from these verses that I think are important. First, let me say that the creation order has nothing to do with a man and woman's worth. A man and woman's worth has nothing to do with created order. This is really cool. Uh, this is where it's kind of tough that you're on mute, and uh, I would do this in the, if we were in public, but I'd ask you to yell out, do you remember of Jacob's 12 sons who was the firstborn? The firstborn was Reuben. Okay, he was the firstborn son. Remember, firstborn sons received a double portion of inheritance. That's what they received. So you would think then, because you're the firstborn and you get double inheritance, you must be the most important. Well, do you remember which son Jesus came from in terms of descendant? You'd think it must be Reuben. No, it's not. 
the fourth-born son, Judah. So Jesus was descended from the fourth-born son, not the first-born son, but none of us deny the worth of Jesus Christ because he came from a fourth-born son's seed. So clearly, firstborn in God's eyes has nothing to do with one's worth. Also in Genesis 1.26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Male and female, he created them. There wasn't a lesser image of God imprinted on a woman and a greater image of God imprinted on man. The image of God was perfectly represented in man and woman equally. So Paul uses 13 to establish 12, but again, it's very difficult for us to surmise exactly how. But here's what I think is going on based on what we've said so far. This created order in terms of Adam being the authority and role of, as leader is what Paul's driving at. And so the why the church is to take the, the leadership cues in terms of Adam's created order is to follow suit. So Adam was created as the authority, and that was his intended role. Likewise, in the church, men, men were created as the authority, and that is their intended role. And that office is being held as the primary teachers and the preachers. But another substantiation from Paul in terms of um, why women aren't to take the office of overseer and uh, teacher because their primary role is to obviously raise family, is really in verse 14. He talks about their deceit. He says, uh, It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived who fell into transgression. Now, I know of a pastor that I highly respect that believes this, and I've read commentaries uh, over the last while that have also suggested this, that what Paul's driving at is, a woman shouldn't be in the pulpit or be a teacher or exercise authority over men because of their susceptibility to deception. In other words, there's an intellectual inferiority and inability to understand the scriptures uh, to the same degree as a man. So because she's open to deception, she shouldn't be in a teaching authority. I would say that's, that, that's uh, not a true, true, that's not what Paul's getting at here. And uh, that can't be the case. If deception was the, it was the concern for Paul in terms of uh, um, teaching, then it would make no sense for him in Titus 2 to tell older women to teach younger women. In other words, it's okay for a woman to deceive a man, but she, she's, but, or not to deceive a man, but she's free to deceive an older, a younger woman. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Not only this, in Proverbs 1, 8 and 6, 20, uh, the, um, Solomon says, Hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. <laughs> so again, um, it's, you know, they're allowed, it's, um, again, he's fully aware that it's good for children to be taught by moms. If it was uh, an issue for deception, that wouldn't make any sense either. Because, man, of all the people you, wanted to, you wouldn't want to deceive, it would be your children. In Hebrews 5.12, Paul says, For the, though by this time you all ought to be teachers, but you have need of someone again to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. He's speaking to the whole church. He does not speaking to men only. He's speaking to women as well. And they haven't matured to the degree they needed to be at this point in their faith. And again, in Acts 18.26, everyone knows this one. It's famous. Priscilla and Aquila are teaching Apollos. So again, regardless of whether she's teaching alongside her husband or not, she still had a teaching uh, uh, role in that. 
So it can't be about intellectual inferiority, which surprises me because some commentators still uh, hold this as a belief of what Paul's driving at. But it also can't be who is to blame either. Who is to blame? And here's why in Romans 5, you know this passage well in verse 12, Adam is held responsible for the sin of uh, entering into the world. Um, so, uh, right, he talks about this in Romans 5.12. So what's the point? Well, again, this is debated a lot, um, but I like what Char um, uh, Thomas Oden said in one of my commentaries. He said, the fall of humanity was caused by a collusion of men and women, with women leading the way and man following. And this makes sense. Adam was in the authority role. He would have, from everything we can surmise from Scripture, passed down God's commandment about what not to eat, and otherwise they would die. And she took the role, she took his role, she was deceived into taking his role, and took his role of authority. And Adam, of course, didn't step up to the plate and allowed this to happen. So the point of mentioning deceit here is not to, to see her as being more susceptible to deception, but through deception, a role reversal happened in the garden. And you know what? God called Adam out for this in 3.17. When he cursed him for the work, his role, when he cursed him in his role in work, you know what he said? He says, because you listened to the voice of your wife. In other words, you listened to her. You should have, you should have taken the leadership in this area and you didn't. And as a result, the women in her curse, like in the woman's curse, the result is that she's always wanted to be the authority. That is, that's in the nature of women. They want to be in the authority. Um, Genesis 3.16, he says, you will desire to rule, but he will rule over you. But again, what's the context of that? Marriage. That's the context of this is marriage. You will desire He's not talking about um, anything else but the marriage union in this, in this aspect. So with all this said, this is why Paul moves into the primary roles for women in verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now I sound like a broken record. Um, but remember, again, the women in Ephesus, under the direction of the false teachers, had rejected the notion of motherhood. They had devalued the importance of family. And what they're trying to do here is they're trying to trade in the office that God designed them for, which is family, a full-time position, a full-time management. You know, that's their office. And they wanted to ditch it and become the authority in the church and take on the role of pastor-teacher. Now, Paul didn't want the women in Ephesus doing that, and he doesn't want women to do that today because you'll, fo you'll miss focusing on your primary intention and your primary role, and that is to focus on the family. So, could there be exceptions to this then? Well, until recently, and I know many of you would hold the position now that I did it a long time ago, or even just up to recently, just in the last few months, I've only changed some of my thinking on this. Um, I would have never have ever thought that these words in my, it would have come out of my mouth in terms of the way I'm preaching this. I was adamant that the, the, the role of men was the, or women was restricted in, in terms of teaching and have a, uh, in the pastoral positions and all these types of things. Um, but I think, uh, based on this, um, there's an, there's probably a possibility for a single woman, a single woman. 
to have the office of overseer. She, here's why, verse 15 has to be considered here. If a woman's single, verse 15 can't apply to her. If she's been given the gift of singleness, it can't apply to her. She, she's not going to forsake her role of, role of motherhood, or she's not going to forsake her role of having children, because she can't break that, that, that Paul's instruction. And this is important. And I realize he doesn't address single women in 1 Timothy directly, but I think there's a potential there for this to be a, um, be a possibility. Now, I bring this up because I want to end with John Wesley. Remember I said that for 33 years he didn't believe and practice that women could even teach at all in the pulpit, never mind hold the office. So not only could they not even hold the office, they couldn't even teach or preach. They were relegated to, like, like you know, uh, the sidelines. His mind changed after 33 years of ministry at 68 by a woman named Mary Fletcher. This woman came to Christ as a teenager, and she stayed single uh, in her late teens and early 20s, and she inherited a, an estate from her grandmother. She had inherited a large estate because her family was extremely wealthy. She turned the estate into an orphanage. So she didn't take the wealth and live off of it for herself. She used the money as an opportunity to do God's work. And she turned it into an orphanage. Now she met John Wesley. And uh, they were all in the Anglican Church at that time. And John Wesley was uh, obviously had was small groups and different uh, street ministries and whatnot. But he never allowed women to officially teach or preach ever in these assemblies. He never did. And then one day this woman, Mary Fletcher, came up to him and opened, his, opened the Bible and showed him the scriptures uh, about this idea like, of, um, that there were, there were circumstances where she felt that the scriptures were pointed to the fact that a single woman could do this. And uh, John was convinced with her exhortation of the word and then allowed her to take a preaching, teaching position. And thing is, church, she never had children. She died with no children. And she actually only got married later in life. Her husband only lived for four years and passed away. So there was no time for family. And what's crazy about this, I want to, let me tell you how, how crazy that was in their times. And I'm going to quote you a man. Uh, his name was uh, Dr. Johnson. And uh, Johnson said this about women in the pulpit or even teaching at all back in the days when John Wesley allowed this woman to take the position of, uh, of uh, teaching in the church and hold the office. Or not, or not hold the office, she still had the orphanage. But he said this, like listen to the, the craziness of this. He goes, a woman's preaching is like a dog walking on its hind legs. It's not done well, but you're surprised at all to find that it can be done at all. I mean, that's, you talk about, right? I mean, that's an amazing statement. A woman's preaching is like a dog walking on its hind legs. It's not done well, but you're surprised if fine is done at all. That's the environment that John Wesley was, and, and, and he actually held that position. Um, he imposed rules to enforce this type of thinking. Now, he didn't make that statement, but he believed it. Um, Mary Fletcher didn't preach or teach in his church, or uh, hold any position over uh, in these types of ways for years. Again, 33 years, no women could ever do this, but she convinced them, and based largely on everything I presented you today.
Now, what about women who have had children? They've raised them, fulfilled Paul's commands in verse 15, and now have fulfilled their primary role of motherhood. Well, 1 Timothy doesn't speak to that person. Doesn't speak to that person. He doesn't address that. Again, because that would be like uh, not a norm. Because once you've raised children and done your proper role, you've dedicated 20 years of your life. The chances of you going into a career and uh, to holding the office of ministry is pretty darn small. In fact, even to remain single for the kingdom and to move into these positions is pretty darn small. In fact, I only know of of two, uh, one or two women in my entire life who, who are in this position, even to consider this. So it's a very small percentage. I would say, based on my conclusions from Scripture, the door would be open. But again, Paul and Timothy, or Paul doesn't speak to this specifically, so we're left to just take the principles of Scripture and run with them and think them through. So in conclusion, I know this is a massive subject, it's impossible to cover all the, the questions you may have, the questions that I've had. Uh, I know some of you still may not be convinced uh, from the things I presented to you. You will still hold your, to your original convictions, and, uh, and I, I respect you for it. And uh, again, I would never thought that these words would have come out of my mouth, that I've opened the door in this way. But I, I, I have to submit to the things I've been learning in the Word of God. And my job is to present to the scriptures the best I know how, based on the maturity of where I'm at now and my knowledge. And this is, I could be convinced to change again, but at this current stage in my Christian walk, this is where I stand. And I'll be honest, uh, when we, we studied Second Peter, Peter, the apostle, who was Jesus' right-hand man, made this declaration about Paul in chapter 3, verse 16. He says, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. <laughs> That's Paul the Apostle writing to the churches in, um, in Galatia, really, like, uh, yeah, and basically saying, yes, Paul is difficult to understand. So again, uh, trust me, I know. All I have to do is read Romans 9, uh, the allegories in Galatians about, uh, you know, Hagar and Sarah and all these different things. And 1 Timothy chapter 2, he's a difficult man to understand. So let's uh, go to the lessons now. I don't know why it won't let me go to my lessons. Here we go. The role of bearing and raising young children is what restricts women from taking the office of an overseer, as seen through the following. Now I'll, let you, I'll just give you time to write that down before I move on. We can always revisit them at the end. The role of bearing and raising young children is what restricts women from taking the office of an overseer, as seen through the following. Married women are the assumed audience in 1 Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 15, he assumes that women are going to get married and have children. In chapter 3, verse 2, he assumes that men who take the position of eldership are married. And in 3.12, he assumes the position of deacons are married. He's not talking to single people because he assumes that's the absolute... Um, well, he's not talking to singles because, or addressing them because it's, it's, a, it's not the norm. It's not the norm. So he assumes marriage. So the role of a woman is motherhood. That's her role, not the office of overseer.
Um, the restriction is regarding the office of an overseer elder as seen in 1 Timothy 3.1 and 1 Timothy 3, 5-17 and 18. Again, um, this is important. It's not a, he's not talking, I believe, about a one-time teaching. He's not saying like it's a gender issue. Women can't teach men because of gender. He's saying the issue in Timothy has to do with role. These women want to, they want to ditch their primary role to go off and be teachers. And he's saying, you're forsaking this. Verse 15 only makes sense in that context. If verse 15 wasn't there, church, if it wasn't there, then I would be convinced of my original position, that the, it has to do with created order rooted in, in Adam and Eve. Um, but verse 15 talks about the woman's role because that's a full-time office and she can't do both. She can't manage a church and, and rule a church and rule a family. It's impossible to do so. Number three, having and raising children is the role of the married woman. And we see this in 1 Timothy 2, 15, 5, 10, and from last week's sermon in 1 Samuel 11 and so on. That's her primary role. Number two, while the events in the Garden of Eden affected the roles of men and women in life, in no way did they affect their quality of worth before God. I have to say this. Like, one, I won't tell you who, but one of my family members, this is, like, I'll show you how, like, uh, where my theology has come from in terms of change over time. Like, um, because I held to the original position so strongly, like many of you do now, um, I was with one of my family members, and uh, I, they, were for, they were on position two. The, open, there was, the, the roles are open to all women equally and men equally, which I didn't agree with and still don't from this sermon. You can see that. It's, rest it's very rest it's restricted to in, to stri strict cases here, but um, what when she heard when she was discussing these things, she said to me, "Oh, Andrew, you're not one of those people, are you?" AKA referring to women can't teach or ever teach in the pulpit, and um, she said it right in front of all my family. I'm like, "Oh, here we go. Here's a, here's a message. Here's a time for a fight," but she automatically pigeonholed me as like you know backwards and a misogynist and all sorts of things because. Um, I saw it as a uh, making women inferior in some kind of way. But again, it had nothing to do with inferiority. It had to do with role and uh, what we were called to as men and women. So again, uh, lots of proof in today's sermon that role has nothing to do with equality. It's the way God created it. And finally, women who have chosen to remain single for the purpose of serving the Lord or women who have already raised their children are not addressed directly in 1 Timothy chapter 2. I admit that. However, neither would be forsaking their primary role of motherhood if they were to choose the office of a teaching elder. So, I know there's lots to say on this. And again, I'm not... Uh, I still respect you, and I presume you still respect me if you still disagree. But hopefully I've opened... Uh, um, your eyes to other scriptures and other ways of approaching the subject matter. And I, at this current stage too, I am convinced that this is what Paul is driving at. But I would love to hear your comments and feedbacks. Whenever your name shows up, I will uh, call on you to speak.